Would you bow with me once more as we prepare to enter God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We have already heard it uh, this morning, and now we ask that as we reflect upon it, as we dig a little bit deeper uh, into some of the truths and how they apply to us, Holy Spirit, I ask, open our hearts, open our minds to receive what you have for us today. Speak through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are continuing in Romans on to part four, entitled The Inner and Outer Mark of a True Believer. I'll begin this morning with the well-known story involving a man named Gustav Dore. Gustav Dore, for his time, was a famous artist who once lost his passport while traveling in Europe. When he came to the border crossing between two countries and was asked for his passport, he fumbled about and finally had to admit, I have lost it. But it is all right. I am Doré, the artist. Please let me cross. Oh, no, replied the officer. We have plenty of people representing themselves as this or that great person. Here is a pencil and paper. Now, if you are indeed Doré, the artist, prove it by drawing me a picture. And so he took the pencil, he took the paper, and he drew a picture of a scene in the immediate area. The officer then took the picture looked at it for a long moment, and then replied, Now I am perfectly sure that you are Doré, for no one else could draw like that. And this is a great example of what identifies us, the identifying marks as a true believer and follower of Jesus Christ. It is both in what we say and also in what we do. And does the one line up with the other? Doré said that this is who I am, but then through his actions of showing his his drawing and his skill proved, in fact, that what he said was true. Now, in today's scripture passage in Romans chapter 2 and verses 12 to 29, we will see here how the Apostle Paul identifies what is and also what is not the inner and outer marks of a true believer. Now, all of us are familiar with marks. No, I'm not talking about Mark's work warehouse or if your dad's name is Mark. Uh, I, I believe the one who is his, he just walked out with the kids for children's church. But we, we're all familiar with Mark's, whether by name or by other terms. Our English language can use the word in many, many different ways. For instance, we typically will use a mark to identify whether something is right or wrong or to identify what... <coughs> or or to whom something belongs to. So in the former, students, uh, I think we've got some students in the room. Are there some students here? What kind of a mark do you want to see on your quiz? A check mark, right? You want to see that red ink with a check mark. You don't want to see an X, right? X is bad. Check marks, good, right? Students, we look for that mark with some anticipation and perhaps trepidation depending on how much you studied. There's other ways that we use marks as well. People that will cut down trees, you'll often see in town, that they will be marked with an orange tag or orange spray paint marking them that they are to be removed and cut down. So if a tree sees the mark on itself, oh, that's not a good thing. I'm not long for this world, right? But the tree next to it, no mark, it will still stand. 
Another way that we use marks is to identify things. So, for instance, um, I'm pretty sure that at some point in my life, my mother marked the tag of my clothing with my initials so that inevitably, when I would lose them, that someone would come along, they could see DG. Oh, this must be Danny Greenings. We mark things to identify them. I also will identify myself to others as a fan of the Blue Jays by wearing their mark in the form of a logo on my ball cap. And on that note to my fellow Jays fans, it was a good run while it lasted. (laughs) Always next year, right? So, we know marks in many different ways. Now, for the principally Jewish believers in Rome to whom Paul was writing, marks were a big deal. Because the Jews had many many outer markings that identified them to others as Jews and therefore as members of the covenant of Abraham. They wore those marks with great pride. And they believed, in fact, that those marks qualified them as the mostest, bestest, super-duperest, holier-than-thouest people in the whole world. Has anyone ever met someone like that who thought that? Well, the Jews thought that. And so to that mindset, to that way of thinking, listen to what Paul wrote to them, and we'll we'll pick up in verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, Because you have the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So in this section, rather than first identifying what are the correct marks of a true believer, the check mark, if you will, Paul begins by identifying what the marks are not. So rather than the check marks, we will call these the X's. So the first X of, of the first X mark of not being a true believer, the first X is thinking that our effort has contributed to us having a right relationship with God. Thinking our effort has contributed. I want you to take note in verses 17 and 23 how Paul specifically calls out the Jews' superiority complex of pridefully bragging, boasting about the law and their special relationship to God as though it had come as a result of their own effort. There's a fable told that one day a peasant was driving his sturdy ox through the village on the way to the, to the fields to work. And upon the ox's nose sat the tiniest of fleas. Well, at the end of the day, the ox and the peasant now trudged wearily back through the village, the field now plowed, and with that tiny flea still perched on the ox's nose. Now, as the peasant and the ox Trudged by the villages in silence, weary from their day of hard labor, the flea, however, 
He was proudly and grandly standing up as tall as his tiny stature could take him, and he was bowing to all sides, grandly declaring and proclaiming to everyone who could possibly hear his tiny flea voice, we've been plowing, we've been plowing. And I can just imagine the ox replying, oh really, we? Think about the effort that little flea put in. He was there all day, but how much of that can he take credit for? You see, the Jews were just like that flea. They foolishly thought that they had done as much work as the ox. For though the Jews were literally just along for the ride, God did everything every step of the way. In fact, we could very clearly argue that God dragged them along, almost unwillingly at times, where where they were repeatedly referred to, we see in Exodus, as a rebellious, stiff-necked people. What credit could they possibly take for the Exodus? What credit could they possibly take for having the promised land given to them? It was all God. God almost had to drag them, kicking and screaming through parts of it. And yet here they are. We did this. You and us, God, we're partners in this, right? We did this. Well, can you see the fallacy in that? Now, them thinking that because their effort, that they could in fact brag, we Jews have a special relationship with God because of our effort. And so we could describe them as being cultural Christians, cultural believers, believing that their Jewish status is what made them right with God. For they were putting their confidence in their birth certificate that as Jews... They, they were morally, you know, superior, God's chosen special people, and therefore that is what earned them their right relationship with God. In fact, they thought it was by their moral effort and observance of the law that made them better than everyone else and special before the Lord. They put their faith in their works and in themselves rather than in the finished work of Christ. Now, we can be guilty of doing the same thing today, can't we? We might not say it out loud, especially not in in public or in polite company, but we can be tempted to think things along these lines. We Mennonites have a special relationship to God because of, fill in the blank, our good morals, our good works, or our great work ethic. Or we can think things like, Well, my family has been faithfully serving the church for multiple generations. From great-great-grandpa, great-grandpa, grandpa-dad, right down to me. So we are just a little bit more important to God. But in doing that, in thinking these things, we are just like the flea riding the ox and just like the Jews thinking that their special relationship with God was somehow by their own doing, their own effort. For what could they or we possibly contribute to the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus upon the cross? What can we possibly add through our feeble efforts to add something to his divine blood poured out upon Calvary? What can we add? There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that we can contribute in effort, in in skill, in ability. In fact, the very reason Jesus' blood was shed out upon that cross is because of our many, many 
failings, and our sin. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians addressing this exact thing, we've all heard it before, but we need to hear it again and remind ourselves, for it is by grace you have been saved, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Zero effort on our part, so that no one can boast. And what does Paul address the Romans as doing? Boasting, bragging. And he, and he says to the Ephesians, no, this is not of works, not of yourself. No one can boast. Don't do it. Now the second X. The second X is thinking that our external status and superior knowledge sets us above others. Now in verses 18 to 20, Paul points out that the Jews were so confident of their special status and knowledge of the law that they arrogantly saw themselves, rather than God, as being the guides for the blind, the light in the darkness, the instructors of the foolish, and the teachers of children. But then in verses 21 to 23, he hammers away with five absolutely loaded questions. These are right to the teeth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law? That last question is the biggest of all because it's all-encompassing. In the previous verses from 12 through to 14, he points out that the, the law, what, what, it's, what it's doing there, is those who sin apart from the law, while they're still going to be punished, they're still condemned, And those who are under the law are in fact condemned by that same law, so it cannot save them. All it can do is show them their terrible position. That no matter how you slice it, the law cannot save you. And so he asked them, you who brag about that same law that cannot save you, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Because you see, no one can keep the whole law perfectly. And Paul continues to build that point throughout the book of Romans. But now talk about the nerve of Paul to ask these sorts of loaded questions, right? These aren't just like, you know, consider this or think about that. He's giving it them right in the face. Talk about the nerve. But then he goes one giant step further of even having the nerve to ask those five questions by in fact declaring, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Whoa. Now, you've got to remember that at this point, to our knowledge, Paul had not yet visited Rome. Most of these believers he had not even met in person yet. And yet he is saying, because of your hypocrisy, you are actually causing God's name to be blasphemed amongst the Gentiles. Talk about being bold. To shine the spotlight on this ugly fact that their hypocritical actions and attitudes were actually putting a stumbling block in front of people coming to faith. Now, in modern-day terms, it is much like the story of Brother Brighton that maybe some of you have heard before. Brother Brighton was a pompous, self-righteous sort of man who was always meticulous about his outer appearance. He was a member of the most prestigious church in town. He carried the biggest Bible. He always sat in the front row. He felt very strongly about the appearance of other members in the church as well. He had no patience for those little boys who were anything less than perfect in church or in the community. 
And so, becoming quite irritated at the poor behavior of some of the boys, he finally decided that he was going to fix this himself by volunteering to teach the young boy's Sunday school class. And so, on the very first day of his class, he decided that he would begin by teaching the boys the importance of the Christian life. And so he began with this question. Why do people call me a Christian? The little boys all stared at him for a long, awkward moment, and finally one mischievous youngster piped up and said, Well, maybe it's because they don't know you. (laughs) You see, Brother Brighton knew all about outer appearances. But those who knew him well could see the hypocrisy and knew that that was all it was, outer appearances, the external status of of a true believer. But his hypocrisy betrayed that on the inside it was not genuine. And this type of hypocrisy gets a big old X in red ink from the Apostle Paul, and it brings more harm than good to the witness of Christ in the world. So now the third X that Paul addresses. The third X is believing that by observing religious rituals and customs, this is what brings us into right relationship with God. We'll read verses 25 to 27. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, but if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Now, it's a bit of a confusing passage, but I'll try to unpack it for you. The physical mark of the Abrahamic covenant was, of course, the practice of male circumcision. It all began in Genesis 17. Every male among them was was called by God to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant between Abraham and then all of his descendants to set them apart as those under the covenant. This was a distinctive mark of their special relationship with God. So what is our distinctive marks as Christians today? Well, we know that we are no longer required under the law to practice male circumcision as a matter of doctrine. And I believe that as we consider our distinctive marks as Christians today, one of the closest parallels would be the act of water baptism. I will always state at the beginning, or somewhere in every baptism service that we do here in the church, that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. By that I mean that if your inner heart has not already been cleansed by the washing of the word through repentance and faith in Christ, then getting baptized is nothing more than taking a bath. It's nothing more than dropping into the dunk tank at the fair. It's getting wet. That's all that it is. The physical ritual itself has no power to save you if it is not representative of something that has first happened on the inside. Now, Paul limits the value of ritualistic rule-keeping, and of course he focuses on circumcision because that was the Jewish custom. He says circumcision is of value only if you keep the law, and by that he means by keeping the whole law, which of course we know is utterly impossible. Because if you do not keep the whole law on all points at all times, then your circumcision, he says, becomes uncircumcision. And in a similar way, 
Baptism becomes unbaptism if it is not preceded by that inner cleansing that can come about only through true repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. And the bottom line of what marks us as true believers is our faith and commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't rely on mere religious rituals to identify us as Christians. We can go through all of the motions mindlessly. Just like Brother Brighton, we can dress up, we can carry a big Bible, we can sit in the front row, we can do all of these things that we think are what Christians should do. But in and of themselves, without that first inner transformation, this too gets a big old X. So what then are the check marks? What are the check marks we look for that we want to see? The marks of a true believer. Well, let's go on in our passage. Verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Now think of it like this, the packaging on some of our groceries. Have you checked the measurement labels on some of your grocery items lately? Have you noticed that there may actually be less in the package than there used to be? Has anyone noticed that? Well, according to the U.S. News and World Report, many manufacturers, for many years now, I know this has been happening, manufacturers are selling us the exact same size of packaging that we are used to. They don't change that. But they are putting less and less inside said packaging. Now, of course, the measurements on the weight, they have to have those go down, but the outer package looks the same. So when you go and buy a box of something thinking that's the same as it was before, it might be 10 grams less, it might be 20 grams less, it might be however many ounces less. Take, for instance, my favorite snack, potato chips. You can buy this big old bag of chips. You know, it's, it's huge. You see some of those big party-sized bags in, in the grocery store, and for me, that's a snack size. And on the outside, you know, it's got the logo, it's got the branding, it's got the colorful pictures promising the deliciousness on the inside. And so you buy it, you open it up, and then you open it up and you look way down inside, and there it is. Maybe a third of the way up. The rest is nothing but air, right? You've all noticed this, right? This is, this is how they do it. In fact, the majority content inside of a bag of potato chips is nothing but air. So what is presented on the outside is what, and what is actually contained on the inside are not matching up. The visual of what I am seeing and expecting and anticipating is not even close to being the same. This is an idea of what Paul is talking about here. A true believer is not necessarily the one with big, brightly colored packaging on the outside. In the context of the Jews, it's not about the circumcision and all the other actions and rituals that you are, that you are doing. A true believer is one that has the right substance of faith on the inside, he says, in their heart. The circumcision that matters is by the Spirit, and this happens in a spiritual way in our hearts. And to get the full impact of what Paul is driving at here, we're going to do one of those jump-aheads in this letter to Romans chapter 10 and verses 8 to 10, where later on in the letter he fleshes it out further and he says, But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. 
That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And so here we see Paul making the full connection between the inner mark of of faith in the heart and the outer mark of a true believer. And so here it is. It begins, of course, with that inner mark of faith in Christ, believing that God raised him from the dead, the full work of what Christ has done on our behalf, believing that truly in our hearts. And then here is the outer mark. This is it. This is what must show on the outside. The outer mark is this, our verbal profession of faith. That is the outer mark. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That is the outer mark. It comes from our mouths. We say it. We declare it. And that is the verbal, the outer marking of a true believer. We profess, Paul says, with your mouth. You profess your faith and are saved. That is the outer mark. That is it. That is all. There is nothing more that needs to be added. For true faith in the heart leads to verbal profession from the mouth. It cannot be contained. If Christ, the spirit of Christ, has been born in your heart, you cannot stay silent. You will. You must. You are compelled to declare, yes, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord, and I'm not ashamed, because that is the premise in chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. I must declare Jesus is Lord. And if you must throw me in prison, I will declare Jesus is Lord. I will not, I cannot be silenced because of what has taken place inside my heart. And so you see, these two marks must go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. To have just one and not the other does not work. They always must go together. Paul links them They are inseparable. For true faith in the heart leads to verbal profession from the mouth, which then leads to living out that life of faith through our actions. In such a way, he concludes the passage, that we will now live to receive the praise of God rather than the praise of men. So you see, it always works its way from the inside to the outside. This is the progression. So now as we conclude, let me ask you, Which marks do you bear? Which marks? Are they the X's of a cultural Christian believing all of those those other X's, those three things? Or is it the check marks of a true believer? Now, how can I know whether or not I am a cultural Christian or a true believer? Well, there are some very specific ways. In his boldly entitled book, The Unsaved Christian, Dean in Sarah writes something that really jumped out at me, and I'm going to share it with you. He writes, My grandfather had a grapefruit tree in his backyard. When I was a kid, he would let me climb the ladder and help him pick the grapefruits off the tree. I probably climbed up that ladder 50 times in my life, and to this day, when I see a grapefruit, I always think of my grandfather. Even though I grew up in Florida and was around that tree regularly as a child, I couldn't recognize a grapefruit tree on my most citrus-informed day. There was only one reason and one reason only that I even knew that something was a grapefruit tree, and that was because it grew grapefruits. I could only identify an apple tree or an orange tree if it actually had the matching fruits 
on its branches. Before Jesus gave the cultural Christian the chastening words of Matthew 7, he talked about fruit. This is what he said. In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. You see, the way that we can know if we are not the people in Matthew 7 is to make sure we are the fruitful trees of Matthew 7. Jesus is not advocating for a works-based salvation here, but rather for the evidence of an actual saving faith. Even as an eight-year-old boy, I knew the tree in the backyard was a grapefruit tree because I saw grapefruits. I climbed the ladder and pulled them off the tree myself. And so if you're not entirely sure if your fruit is matching the tree that you are claiming to be, well, we can look at the word of God to, to evaluate and ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to see if the fruit of our life is matching with what we claim to be. The hallmarks of this fruit, of course, come from the Spirit of God, consisting of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those are the hallmarks of all of our actions, all of our words, and all of our conduct. Do those things match up with who and what I claim to be? I would invite you to also prayerfully ask yourself the questions in regards to the X's. Do I in any way believe that my personal effort has somehow contributed or, or helped me earn having right relationship with God? Do I in any way believe that my external status and superior knowledge is what makes me better than others? Do I in any way believe that it is by observing religious rituals or customs that has brought me into right relationship with God? If the Spirit convicts you in any one of these areas, here is what God's Word would instruct you to do. First, acknowledge it. Acknowledge what is the truth. We can deny it, we can sugarcoat it, but if it is there, face it, own it, and then humbly confess it to the Lord. Repent of those false beliefs. Ask for the Lord's forgiveness to cleanse your heart. Acknowledge that you cannot add anything to God's salvation by your own effort or your standing. And in your heart, place your faith solely in Christ and in his complete and finished work through his life, death, and resurrection, thereby paying the debt of every last one of your sins in full with his shed blood and bringing you into a right relationship with God the Father. And then, out of that simple faith born in your heart, profess with your mouth the one and only mark that's required, Jesus is Lord. And yes, Jesus is my Lord. And then continue to live out that, that faith and that profession in your actions, guided by the Spirit, no longer looking to please others to receive their praise, but living only to receive the praise of the one and only that matters, God himself. And so my deepest prayer for each and every one here and listening today is that we would all bear the inner 
and outer marks of a true believer, from the heart to the mouth to living out our lives, bearing fruit for our maker, living for an audience of one, seeking his praise alone. May God add his blessing to his word and to each one of our hearts today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, the Apostle Paul, who you so powerfully filled by your Holy Spirit and gave revelation to speak to us today. And we thank you that these words are still just as sharp, just as active today as we have sat under them, as we have heard them, as we have contemplated them. And so, Lord, I pray, in the way that only you can, would you show us, Lord, in our heart of hearts, if in any way, shape, or form we have believed any one of these lies, any one of these X's that does not belong, that is not in agreement with your word. And if so, Lord, help us to humbly confess that, to repent, to come to you, having our hearts washed through the, through the hearing of the word and by the work of the Spirit. And then out of that, knowing that there is nothing we can add there is nothing we can do. There is not my family name, status, church affiliation, nothing that I can bring to the table. Only what Jesus has done is enough. And it is enough. And it is by you alone, Lord Jesus, that we are saved. And so we profess, you are Lord, and you are my Lord. Help us, O Lord, out of that faith in our hearts, that confession of our mouths, and by the work of your Holy Spirit, would it be shown to be genuine and true by the fruit borne out in our lives as we live for your praise and your praise alone, for it is for your glory that we live and that we seek and that now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.